So our reading this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 down to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 2 verse 11. And uh, before we read, let's bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, uh, the great gift it is to us, how privileged we are to, to have it in personal Bibles and in, on our phones and so much easy access to it. And we pray you'd enable us, therefore, to repay that gift to us with our attention and our uh, engagement with the text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is speaking to Gentiles, the Gentiles of, of the church in Ephesus, and he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer alien, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this will be the the last in our series on covenant theology for a while at least. Um, And I have to admit, as I was preparing to do this last one, I thought, yeah, I could do four or five more. (laughs) But I think you probably had enough of that. So we'll we'll finish off today. But uh, so what I want to talk about this morning is the church and the covenant. And the covenant, as we have seen over the last few weeks, uh, the covenant is the kind of underlying structure of scripture. It kind of underpins everything else uh, in God's relations to human beings. And so wherever you are in the Bible, you're never actually far away from the covenant of God and the covenant uh, promises of God. So it's kind of like a skeleton Uh, under the surface of the body. You may not always see the skeleton. You may not always want to see the skeleton. (laughs) Um, But you need to know it's there. Otherwise the whole thing collapses into a mush. 
Um, sorry, not to be too graphic about it. <laughs> Uh, and some Christians are quite mushy about their view of the Bible because they don't have that structure in place. And as we, what's interesting though is, is as we move into the New Testament, uh, the idea of covenants uh, kind of seems to take a back seat. It goes more into the background. Um, it's mentioned a few times, and especially in the book of Hebrews, but generally the the idea of covenant kind of moves into the background and other ideas begin to take center stage let me mention three of them one of them is Christ himself Christ who is the the one who has been promised from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the Bible the the one who is anticipated to come the seed of the woman now Christ has come And so we focus less on the promises that were made looking forward to Christ and we look at Christ himself. And so the New Testament is full of Christ. The Old Testament is full of Christ too, but in a different way. But it's all about Christ, more explicitly about Christ. Another idea is, of course, the kingdom of God. And the Bible, the New Testament, uh, speaks a great deal about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus preached on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. Repent, therefore, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in me. And Jesus Christ comes as the king of the kingdom. And the kingdom is proclaimed across the world. That idea of kingdom came with David uh, in the early administration of the covenant of grace. But now it comes to its fullness in Jesus Christ. And then the third idea that comes to the fore in the New Testament, and prominently so, is the idea of the church. And the centrality of the church, or the ecclesia, in covenant life. Which is, of course, the notion of the people of God being gathered together in one place. It literally means assembly, a gathering the ecclesia. And that idea is present in the Old Testament as well. A different word for it, a Hebrew word, kahal. Uh, and what you, many times in the Old Testament you find the people of Israel gathering as a kahal, uh, kahaling, <laughs> if you like. So I'm ma- massacring the language for you students. Um, but you know, you get the idea. They gather together before God. To worship, to commit themselves to God, to consecrate themselves to God, and so on. All of these things are important. And now in the New Testament, the the church comes to the fore um, as the visible expression of that kingdom of God. So you've got Christ, the kingdom, and the church is the visible expression of that kingdom of God on earth today. And it's this last idea of the church that I want to speak about this morning. Um, So last week we spoke about uh, the covenant blessings coming from the triune God. So Ephesians chapter 1 we looked at last time. So Father chooses his people. He has chosen you, Ephesians. And then Jesus Christ has uh, shed his blood for you, for your forgiveness, for the same people. 
And then the Holy Spirit has come and sealed you, you same people. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the whole of salvation, as it comes to you and me personally, is a fully Trinitarian act of salvation. God the Father is involved. God the Son is involved. God the Holy Spirit is involved. And that's how the salvation, the covenants, blessings, come to you and to me uh, in salvation. And today I want to talk to you about the life of the body, the, gr- the life of the church, uh, the group of people called the church. And there's too much to say simply from one passage. So this morning's passage is, is, is a starting point, but I'm going to talk about many other things. So the, the first thing I want to say this morning is the church is one body. Now that may seem obvious, but it's one body. If you look at the passage that we read, you'll see how Paul puts this. And he's speaking here into a particular problem. He's got Jewish believers and he's got Gentile believers. And if you read your New Testament, you'll know there's a bit of kind of conflict and disagreement between those two groups of people. And Paul says in verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and broken down his flesh, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And, and so it goes on. <clears throat> and here he's talking, uh, not just about the Ephesians, but he's talking about the church generally. Um, the whole church of Jesus Christ. The whole church is one. And that whatever your, one way of looking at this is, whatever your ethnic, religious, or cultural differences that exist between you, and we have many of those in here, don't we? Whatever they are, you are one in Jesus Christ. You are one body brought together. You who are far away have been brought near in Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this oneness is a oneness across all places. And all ages. And all cultures. And this oneness is not simply expressed in the the idea of a body. The Bible uses lots of languages to express this oneness. The church is a holy temple. See that in verse 21 grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into the dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. So the, this temple becomes the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is where God comes to dwell. He doesn't dwell in a, a special building somewhere. He, he dwells amongst his people when they assemble and gather together. It's, This oneness is expressed in the idea of a vine. 
And Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches to his disciples in John 15. This oneness is there. Or the, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the, the olive tree in Romans chapter 11. Uh, branches are grafted in and, and some of them don't naturally belong there, but they're grafted in by the grace of God and they become this one beautiful tree, this olive tree that bears fruit. A oneness all across the world. Or it's a, a body. And it's made up with many parts. It's mentioned as a body here. But in 1 Corinthians 12, all the parts are described and how they should work together as a one. 1 Corinthians 12. A oneness about the body. And of course that oneness of necessity has to appear in discrete locations where finite creatures we can't be everywhere with everyone all at once across all ages but we do meet in local congregations and so even as a local congregation it's, a, it's one body it's, it's kind of like one of these fractals it's a, you mathematician types you know what fractals are you, go, you zoom in closer and it's still got the same characteristics as it did at a larger scale you know, the oneness of the church across the world has all, that, all the characteristics are expressed in the local church as well. So there's a, there's a oneness about the church here in Solihull. And this church and that church that meets over there. <laughs> and wherever else they are in Solihull. Uh, you see, Christ Jesus... Only has one body, doesn't he? Doesn't have many bodies. We're we're in distinct localities, and yet we are all one in Jesus Christ. So this is the wonderful thing about becoming a Christian. So all the things we spoke about in Ephesians chapter one last week. Here's one of the wonderful blessings that follow from that, as well as the benefits of personal salvation. Of, of being forgiven of your sin, of being justified before God, of being adopted into his family, of being sanctified and set apart as holy for him, as well as all of these benefits, you get added to the church. You get joined into the church. It's literally people were joined to the church in the book of Acts. You become part of this new family, and your common bond is Jesus Christ. And actually now, if that's true of you, if you are a Christian and you have Jesus Christ as your King and Lord and you are bonded to Him, then you have more in common with these people than you do with your family who may not be believers. That's a fact. We take, it takes us a while for our minds to get into that fact. Because we believe, we go by what we see rather than by faith. But the Bible tells us that. We are bound together. We have a new identity. We have a new citizenship in a new kingdom. And we become part of something that God has been doing for centuries, for millennia, a gathering his chosen people to himself. Let me just say something, a word in passing about that. Um, so over the years here in Solihill, um, I have regularly had conversations with people uh, where a person will say to me I'm a Christian but I don't go to church 
Uh, or sometimes it's stronger. I'm a Christian, and I, but I don't need to go to church. Well, from what we've seen so far, nothing could be further from the truth. Let me be blunt. If somebody says, I don't need to go to church and I'm a Christian, I don't believe they're a Christian. Because they, they don't seem to have that bond with Jesus Christ that draws them to other Christians. No true Christian can stay out of the church if he or she is genuinely converted to Christ. The only exception to that, of course, is if you're the only Christian in your town, which may happen. But otherwise, Christians always seek out other Christians to meet with, to pray with, to worship with, and it becomes their greatest joy to meet together, to worship God more important than anything else you'll ever do in your whole life is this habit of meeting together with brothers and sisters to worship. So, having established that there's one body and the Christian should join it, what are the marks of being a Christian? Here I want to talk about covenant signs and seals. And here we're going beyond the text onto other things. But if you've been here for a while, if you've been coming to this church for a while, you'll know that the signs and seals of the new covenant are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And before I get into, uh, into dealing with those specifically, uh, let me just introduce a, an important concept that I think we need to have as Christians. And it's the concept of the objectivity of, the ch- of church life. The objectivity of church life. What is he talking about? (laughs) Um, I'll I'll explain it. What do I mean? People are generally happy with the subjective experience of the Christian life. And by that I mean, we come to the point where we experience personal faith in Jesus. Something happens to us. We start believing in Jesus. We feel forgiven. We find a new joy in believing. And all of this is happening subjectively inside of us and all of that we treat as as evidences of God working inwardly they are the fruits if you like of the new birth uh, or the new being a new creation or being sealed in the Holy Spirit all of these things are personal things are evidences of that but there is so that's a subjective experience but the objective experience is the experience of things that happen outside of us that God also gives us. And that's provided in the church. In his church. Now there are three main things that churches do. Three marks of a a proper church. A church that is faithful to God. One is the preaching of the word. So the objective experience you'll have is coming and sitting and listening to the preaching of the word. Somebody like me standing at the front and preaching the word of God to you. And we do it this way because we believe that Jesus Christ speaks in the midst of it by his spirit. That when the gospel comes to people through people like me or uh, other preachers, um, it is really Christ who is speaking. And people hear Christ speaking through that ordinary means. So that's the first mark mark of a church, preaching the word. 
The second mark and an objective experience for Christians is the right administration of the sacraments. That's a formal way of putting it. But we take the Lord's Supper and we do baptism. And we take all these things seriously. Um, and these are things we, you know, we don't mess around with. You know, if, if the church is meeting to have the Lord's Supper, you do everything to get here. To have it. Same with worship, by the way. But you do it. And you're willing to suffer it if necessary. And then the third thing, the third mark of a church, is, and this is objective, still in this idea of objective features of the church, is church discipline. Um, not personal discipline over your personal sins, which is important and vital, but the fact that the rest of the church will take seriously dealing with sin in its midst. And it must do that for it to remain pure and holy. And so churches like ours, we have, a, we have a disciplinary process. We don't use it very often. I think, don't think we've ever... Well, we have, actually. <laughs> um, we don't use it very often, though. Because um, usually problems are solved before they get to that stage. But, you know, discipline matters. So, so these are all part of the objective experience of the Christian coming into church life. Um, you hear the preaching of the Word. You participate in the sacraments. And uh, you put yourself under the discipline of the church. Um, now the covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are objective signs for us. They are signs outside of ourselves. Uh, and they are seals of the reality of God's grace. So one of those signs, baptism, is the sign of entry into the church if you like it kind of mirrors new birth it's not necessarily associated ident- um, what's, the, what's the word happening at the same time as uh, new birth it really does but it mirrors that entry into the kingdom of, uh, the kingdom of God uh, baptism and uh, and in the early church this is what marked you out as a Christian. You know, the, an early, a, a Christian in the early church didn't immediately ask, are you born again? Although they might get around to that. But they would want to know, are you baptized? Have you joined the church? Are you part of it? Um, and they would look for this objective evidence of participation in the, church, in the church of Jesus Christ. So, baptism is a sign of entry. Uh, the other sign and seal uh, is the Lord's Supper, which is the sign and seal of continuing in that life. You know, so a baby is born, it's a one-off event, uh, but then the baby's got to feed. And so you have to feed the baby so that it grows and grows and becomes mature. And that's what the Lord's Supper is, is like. It's a means of grace to help us continue in the Christian life. And it continually reminds us and draws us close to Jesus Christ. Um, so in the Christian life, after you've been baptized into Christ, you keep feeding on Christ, uh, using the symbols of bread and wine to help you 
by faith feed on Christ. So the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper are objective signs of individuals participating in the life of Christ's church. All right? Some of you might be sitting there thinking, isn't there a danger that you can participate in the objective things but not have the subjective transformation of the Holy Spirit in your life? And the answer, of course, to that is yes. Which brings us to the next idea. Uh, So we've looked at the church as a body. We've looked at uh, uh, the covenant signs and seals. Let me talk now about the idea of the visible church and the invisible church. Which might seem strange to some folks, but it's in our confession, so I've got to talk about it. Um, And actually people use it. Uh, They understand what we mean by it. Let me explain what I mean. So the visible church is the church that you can see. It's the church of those who have professed faith publicly and their children and they make an objective, verifiable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they are considered uh, members of the church of Jesus Christ by uh, profession of faith with their children and they're baptised and added in that's the visible church the invisible church is called that because it's about what you can't see these are theological terms by the way Um, and it's the, the invisible church is that group of people that God has elected for whom Christ has died And whom the Spirit has subsequently sealed. And it's invisible because nobody can see all of that going on. Nobody can see God's electing choice. We can see that Christ died, but we can't see who he died for just by looking at Christ. And we can't see what the Holy Spirit has done in people's hearts. At least not immediately. Eventually there's fruit. And you can tell what kind of tree you are. Are you a good tree or a bad tree? But initially you can't see it. You know, you've always got to, you've got to be careful with new converts to Christianity that you don't uh, try and make a judgment about whether they're truly born again or soundly converted or all that sort of thing. You nurture them, you encourage them because you, you're hoping that actually they become a proper tree and that eventually they'll bear fruit in life. Um, that's all for God to work out but it's invisible to us now of course when Jesus comes again the elect are finally gathered into God's presence and then the invisible church becomes visible everybody who is in the invisible church becomes visible and becomes the visible church before Jesus Christ so there's a convergence of those two things but we're not there yet And a moment's thought will help you realize that the the invisible church and the visible church are not necessarily made up of the same people. It's possible, for example, to be unbaptized and not be a member of a visible church, but to be part of the invisible church. An obvious example of that is the thief on the cross beside Jesus, who was promised that he would enter into paradise with Jesus that day. 
But he was never baptized. He never joined a church. He never gathered with the saints. He was a thief. But he was saved. Invisible church. On the other hand, it's possible for someone to be baptized and a member of a visible church and yet for them not to be true believers in Jesus Christ. In other words, they have the objective sign of, the, of baptism, but they have not been inwardly sealed with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and these people, and it's not a very nice word, I don't think, but it's a true word, these people are what Jesus called hypocrites. Professing faith in Jesus Christ, but not really believing in Jesus Christ. Now the church generally, and, and in local churches, they have always been a mixture of true believers and some hypocrites. And so you have people who have taken the signs of the covenant and are believers, and they are covenant keepers, if you like. While there will always be some who have the signs of the covenant, but are not believers, and are covenant breakers. Now that's true in the Old Testament. You see it all over the Old Testament. You see people being circumcised and included in the people, and yet they break covenant with God and go their own way. So it is important to receive the covenant signs in order to be part of the visible church, if you can. But it's vitally necessary to be sealed in the Holy Spirit to be a member of the invisible church also. So we're talking about baptism. And the question will arise, who can be baptized? And some people will say, well surely... If you want to minimize the number of hypocrites in the church, then you should only you shouldn't only baptize people who you're shouldn't you only baptize people who you're absolutely sure are in the faith and have a genuine saving experience as far as you can tell. In other words, only baptize those you know for sure are believers should be baptized. And of course, that's the view of of many Christian denominations, uh, Baptists. Independents, Pentecostals, brethren, they're all friends, and, but they say can't baptize people until you're sure they have professed faith. Uh, which is understandable, I understand it. The trouble with it is, and we touched on this last week, is that within the context of God's covenant, that doesn't seem to be what God requires. Yes, he requires people to be believers, but he also includes their children. Think of Abraham, commanded to be circumcised, and every male child in his household, eight days or or older, uh, was circumcised. Did they have a saving experience? Nobody knows. Just do the command. Get it done. Otherwise, they're out of the covenant, says God. They're cut off. Same with Moses, same with David. All the people under their care. All the men circumcised. God wants people to believe in him and to receive the sign of the covenant 
and to apply the covenant sign to their children as well. Now when it comes to the new covenant uh, in Jesus Christ, many, many Christians think, and, and our friends in the Baptists and so on, they, th- they think this, that things are now different. That it's just believers who get the new covenant sign of baptism. However, if you were here last week, um, I touched on something that I think is worth everyone thinking about carefully. We notice something of an important feature of the new covenant that is often missed. You might like to look at this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Kind of in the middle of your Bible. So you remember that last week we looked at this and we saw the, the promise from God. Verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not with lots of individuals, but with household, two households, who at that time historically were split in two. But don't lose the significance of the corporate aspect. The covenant is with the household. And when you make a covenant with the household, the children are included. That's always been the case. And that becomes even clearer when you follow what comes next. So further down, verse 33, the Lord says, when when we make this covenant, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is a great fellowship promise. That God makes. God and his people. Um, And then that promise, you jump ahead to chapter 32 towards the end, verse 38. That promise is repeated, that new covenant promise. It's actually an old covenant promise as well, but it's a new covenant too. And he says, and they shall be, verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then he goes on to say, I will give them one heart and one And one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. See, children are included. And then he says, of all of these people, the parents and their children, he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. See, God enters into covenant with believers and their children, the new covenant. That's why, how else do you understand, it seems to me, how do you you understand Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost and saying, repent and believe and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children. It's the most natural thing for Peter to say within this covenantal framework. Yes, your children are included in this blessing. See, there's such a wonderful continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant that once you see it, you cannot unsee it. That's a problem for me. You'll try and convince me otherwise, maybe, because we have a few Baptists here by conviction, which is fine. You know, I love you so. <laughs> I hope you love me too. 
and you could try and persuade me, but the trouble is, once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> and just think, what are you talking about? There's this and this and this. <laughs> um, sorry, but there we go. There is a wonderful continuity between Old Covenant and New Covenant. And you know, children of believers are considered as participant in the New Covenant blessings as much as they were in the Old. And therefore they should receive the covenant sign of baptism uh, so they become members of the visible church through baptism. And actually, interestingly, historically, Presbyterians generally, not always, generally Presbyterians have not had a problem in calling their children Christians because they're baptized. Not because we know they're born again. We don't know that. Not because they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We don't know that. But we know they're baptized and they're within the orbit and the blessing, the covenant blessings of the church. And so we call them Christians until we see evidence to the contrary. And that's when discipline comes in and we get uh, and we deal with it. You see, historically, and I would argue from the Bible, whenever you see the word Christian in the Bible, and it only happens about four times, I think you can make a case that when it says Christian, it means the community of baptized people. Not, not that pagans, so it's usually on the lips of pagans. And pagans don't know who's born again, do they? But they do know who's baptized. And so they talk about Christians. So the word Christian is, is actually an, an identity marker. Not a, not a statement about your faith in Jesus Christ. So children should be baptized. Let me... Uh, uh, does that mean that all children are going to be saved? I don't know. I can't say that. Will they be born again? I don't know. I still need to challenge the children of this church. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Like your parents. Not just rest on the fact that you're part of a Christian family. You need to believe. You need to be born again. You can't see the kingdom of God without being born again. So you need to be born again. And God will. But if parents are faithful in teaching and training their children in the faith. Parents are often careful about teaching and training and sports and education and all sorts of things. Uh, This thing is really important. It's more important than anything else. That as parents... You teach your children what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So let me just say a few things in conclusion, a few points of application. I've been rambling on too long. Um, First of all, uh, first point of application, learn to love the church. Learn to love the church. It may take time to love it. And and if you join a church, and it may be this one, don't just have your name added to the membership role. Participate. Get involved. Worship twice on a Sunday. Make it a priority to get to the prayer meeting. Shove everything out of the way to get to the prayer meeting. Look for ways to get involved in the lives of other people in the church. And if possible, move... Here's a bold thing. If possible, move closer to the church. Sell your house. Move over. I know, some of you, it's it's really difficult. It's expensive in Solihull. But please, think about it. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't get you to think about it. (laughs) It would be better for you and your family if you were closer to the church rather than living away over somewhere else. Uh, And think about your life. 
you know, as a Christian now, as part of this community, when you go into work, when you interact with your neighbours, you're on the mission field. You are Christian missionaries into that, new, into that situation. And you want to draw people to come to church, to Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing, learn to love the church. Second thing, there's two, three things. Second thing, love the church more widely. Uh, don't treat other Christians with a hermeneutic of suspicion. What do I mean? Somebody belongs to another kind of church, and you think, uh, I'm not sure about that church, and therefore I'm not sure about you. Um, be very careful about that kind of thinking. Jesus Christ's body is one. And we need to love people who profess Jesus Christ. And they may be in error. They may be wrong. But we must love them as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, lastly, love your children and the children of the church. Baptize them. They are blessed already being born into your family. And you have the new covenant blessings, so baptize them. Have them baptized. The promises are not just for you as a parent, but for your children also. And they have a right to those covenant blessings. So baptize them. And teach your children. Read with them. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. They are little disciples. You don't need to know if they're born again or not. They are little disciples. And you are fulfilling the great commission of Matthew 28. Making disciples of the nations. By teaching your, it begins in the home. By teaching your children. And bringing them to church. And in the fullness of time. God will help you bring them to a mature faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the, uh, the depth and breadth of it. And we thank you for your covenant blessings. We pray you'd help us to, to see it so that we can't unsee it. And that we will ever give thanks to you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.